Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Code 321 Podcast. My guest today is Dave Cohen. Hello, Dave. Hey, how are you? Thanks for joining us today on this super, super hot day. Oh, it's my pleasure. Welcome to the show. Um, Today, what I want to talk about is some of the different types of wilderness medicine you can see out there. And it's my understanding you've had some pretty unique opportunities in your life to kind of travel around and, and see some new people. Do you want to talk a little bit about kind of how you got into medicine? How'd you get into wilderness EMS and kind of what brings you here today? Sure. Uh, I actually flipped that. I actually got into medicine because of wilderness EMS first. Oh, perfect. Uh, and prior to that, I actually got into it because uh, I was an active racer in mountain biking. Oh. And uh, I was getting a little old and a little slow <laughs> and maybe thinking that racing wasn't wasn't going to be all it was going to be. Yeah. Uh, and I kind of looked around at what the needs were at the races and festivals I was I was going to and also who was having the most fun. And, yeah. Uh, and I noticed a distinct lack of any kind of first aid or help or, or the few people doing it seemed to be having a blast. So, yeah. Uh, I thought maybe it was a good excuse to go get a little wilderness EMT training, which I did. I went up to the solo school and uh, did their intensive course and got into that uh, as a wilderness EMT and then went to work my first race. Um, actually, I called up the a race promoter and said, hey, who's coming into the Vermont area for a race? And I said, hey, yeah, I'd love to be on your team. I'm new. I'll volunteer whatever you need. You don't have to pay me. And and his response was, uh, is that something we need? <laughs> uh, and then a week later, I was the sole the, the EMS provider uh, at this race as a brand new baby wilderness EMT and had a, had a moment of clarity and terror, realizing yeah. that there were 300 people kind of throwing themselves down a mountain on their bike with, with zero safety net yeah. other, other than me. Yeah. Um, and then had the further understanding that I really, I really knew nothing. So I had done a little bit of clinical work as in my EMT program, had actually really enjoyed it more than I expected to. I'd never really thought about ambulance work. And, and I had the, the understanding kind of realization right away that in order to be an effective provider on a trail or in the backcountry or where things are remote, uh, where you, you really need to have a fundamental understanding of just how to respond to patients in general and, and kind of got myself involved in EMS that way uh, and decided I'd spend a little time on an ambulance to get some actual patient experience. And then quickly from there, I understood that being an EMT maybe wasn't the best way to get the kind of experience and, and knowledge skills. So dove right into paramedic school at, at uh, right away. And, oh, perfect. And so, so yeah, kind of backdoored it through, through mountain biking to wilderness EMT to ambulance work to paramedic school to then working full-time as a paramedic. That's so, so interesting. I've talked with a bunch of athletic trainers and it seems like the route to becoming an athletic trainer is always an athlete that gets injured. And I'm like, wait a minute, is there a whole nother side yeah. of this? Yeah. It kind of reminds me, you know, what you're saying of being a mountain bike racer and kind of paying attention to the medical field and then going into exploring it. Yeah. Have you, when you started mountain bike racing, was there any formal requirement for medical coverage at all? So when I started mountain biking racing, no. And I'd say that now many years later, there still really is not. Yeah. <laughs> so um, wilderness, backcountry, uh, risk-taking, there, there's not a lot. Every now and then you'll have a UCI, which is which is kind of the certifying body for biking internationally. And they have a requirement, but if you look at their guidelines, it's really, I, th- I believe, I haven't looked in ages, but I think it's just a paragraph that says a UCI certified race shall have uh, medical, shall have some sort of first response and safety plan. Um, after that, every race is an individual experience. So each race is kind of owned and promoted and, and organized by different people and their priorities are what they are. And over the years, I found some race organizers 
value their their first responders and some just could care less. Uh, and they really put it on the racers. They sign a little waiver that says, hey, we take no responsibility for this. And uh, well, it's a little terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm not a huge mountain biker, yeah. but the, essentially what happens is you either ride up the hill or you take a lift up the hill and then you ride back down the hill for so, the most part? Or? Well, there are all sorts of different kinds of mountain bike races. Okay. Uh, there's cross-country mountain biking, which is ride up, ride down. It's it's a point to point. Yeah. Uh, the timer starts. There's full on downhill, which is uh, no uphill riding at all, uh, usually lift yeah. and and specifically defined courses. The type of racing I work is, is a hybrid. It's called enduro. Uh, and then I work in within that, I work very specifically in multi-day uh, backcountry enduro races. So four to six days in the backcountry. And, and what we do is we pedal uphill. Uh, you'll start in the morning and you'll leave your base and you'll, you'll pedal till you get to the, to whatever the top is at that first stage. At that point, you put on your, all of your protective gear and you chip in and you race downhill. Uh, oh, and yep. at the bottom of the hill, you chip out and you're done. And then you get back on your bike and you pedal uphill to the next. So the day will be anywhere from six to 10 or 12 hours. Uh, and you have four to seven or eight race stages in a day. So each race stage is, is a full on downhill gravity race. Uh, and then the transitions are at your own pace uphill. Um, as a, as a medical provider. So we respond to all the race stages and are, are present for, for every race stage, which is we're not all, but the majority of the, the injuries happen for sure. Oh man. So how long would each stage be like in miles? Is there, yeah, so short we, don't, or? we don't measure in miles, we okay. measure in time. Okay. Uh, yeah. so you can have a short one, which could be a two to three minute stage, uh, which is, uh, often just the way it goes. And then you can have long ones that can be anywhere from 15 up to 30 minutes of, of full on downhill doing it yeah. doing it so it all depends on the location so yeah. uh, i just got back from a six-day race in british columbia which is one of my favorites oh, and uh, some of those race lines are just uh massively insane and, that's awesome and long um, all of these races are international professional level so they bring some of the best riders from the world around and and then have amateurs and and uh privateer self-riders as well but the quality of the riding and the racing is is full on international level that's great yeah really fun so as a medical provider, what would you say your role would be? Let's say someone takes a fall and they are injured. What, what, where does your role start and kind of where does it end and move on to that greater level of care? Yeah. So it really it might be easier just to describe it. There's, there's a whole system oh, sure. to, yeah, to the race itself. So it's not so much as, as just like, Hey, we're randomly there. Yeah. Um, so a lot of the races I work, I work as the, as the team lead. So that, that work starts months, months in advance yeah. coordinating with the race, uh, looking at what, where they are, what the system is, what, what the situation is. And I, and I work internationally, so it's really trying to understand what the resources are available, both, uh, medically for us, but also search and rescue, helicopter based, fire based, non-fire based, who's, who's there and, 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 uh, who's available. Um, and that's country by country specific. And in the U S it's state by state specific. And, even in some places, it's town by town specific, depending on on where we are and what mountain range we're in and, and what's going on. So we plan that out and there's a whole safety plan. And part of that is about building up a medical team. Um, there's, there's a 50-50 split in our team uh, in that you need to have significant backcountry medical experience. Uh, you need to know what you're going to do, uh, primarily around assessing patients and triaging. And we can talk about kind of what's involved in the wilderness setting for that. But the flip side is, is we do everything on our mountain bikes. So we ride the entire race with the racers, with medical supplies on our back. And you need to have people who are 
confident and competent on their bike, it does no good if, if they're yeah. the world's best trauma surgeon, it does no good if they can't get actually there, get, yeah. to a, yeah, get to yeah. a patient. So I built a team and, and over the years I've kind of put together internationally a group that, that I call on. I have a couple core people and then some ancillary people that I pull in. Uh, it's race by race. There's, yeah. there's no set organization to it. Um, so then we'll build up that team and then, and then it depends on the nature of the race because every race is different. Some races, the days are big loops where you start at a base camp and you ride out and 10, 12 hours later, you ride back into camp. Some of them are point to point in a day where you leave camp and you ride out and they move the camp and you end up at a new camp. Uh, and, and that's going to challenge us. And then some of them are more like, uh, spokes on a wheel kind of hub, hub and spoke where we'll go uh, have a high point that then we kind of drop off into different directions and then repeat back up to that high point. Uh, some of them we have access with vehicles so that we can get to the high points with a truck if we need to. And lots, lots of times we don't. Um, yeah. So it's that whole structure of like, how would he, how do we put it all together? Um, and then what we do basically a day, a day in a race kind of for us is we get up early. The medic team gets up early and leaves with the, uh, before the racers. And we usually, we, depending on the race, we'll have anywhere from four to maybe seven medics and we'll ride out in advance and we ride up and, and when we get to the first high point, the first stage, we'll drop one or two medics there and then the rest will kind of ride on and yeah. we'll stage at all these high points. Then as the race comes through, we have a medic stationed high at, at the high point because it's much easier and faster to respond downhill than, than up. So if something happens on a race stage, we're able to drop a medic down. Uh, and then as the race rides through, the medics kind of pile in behind and sweep. And then at the end of the day, we're all rejoined together and we have a lot of fun, which is inevitably when one of the medics gets hurt. Yeah. <laughs> That's a separate issue. Um, the process for like injury is, is pretty, it's, it's pretty well set now. And we I do a lot of work with the races and the race organizations and the racers, uh, to, to be present. The, the number one thing that we need is communications. We're always way out in the back country, uh, domestically or internationally. Rarely do we have cell service, though sometimes we do. Uh, and then your your cheap uh, kind of small uh, consumer radios have no power. Yeah. So I usually bring we bring a suite of radios with good antenna whip antennas and and strong power. And and then if we need to set up communication chains throughout, we'll do that maybe with some extra volunteers. But the the key is when you're stationed up high and you're in the backcountry, someone gets hurt 150 yards down the trail, you may not even know it. Yeah. Uh, so we actually employ all of the racers and we usually have 150 to, to 200 racers. Um, they're each racing individually. So they drop by time, one at a time. Uh, so the first responder to someone injured, if someone gets hurt on a race line, uh, is the next rider. And so they're instructed to stop, check this person out. They'll worry about their time later. And then the next rider will come through and they're instructed to inform that rider. I have someone down who's unconscious, unresponsive or bleeding or, or broken uh, or crying or just whimpering. Yeah. And, uh, they send that rider on to go down to, until they find uh, someone who's associated with the race. So we'll have radios with there's course marshals, their photographers, um, anyone who's got a radio who then radios up to the medic at the top and saying, we've got reports of ha this happening below you. At which point that, that medic drops straight down. And so it it sounds complicated, but actually from injury to response time is a matter of minutes. Yeah. Uh, we get there faster than, any street ambulance does because yeah, yeah. we're, we're there and, yeah. and we go with gravity. So the expectation is that we usually can get someone to a, a potential patient within several minutes. And then that medic's job is to, it, it's really the best way for those of us in, in normal pre-hospital care. The best way to think of it is it basically becomes an MCI. 
So you don't have an ambulance available. You don't have the resources available. So that person's the first medic's job is to get to that, to that downed rider and immediately assess and triage. And uh, we carry life-saving interventions, mostly bleeding control. Um, they are to do whatever they can immediately and then radio up to the lead medic who's then going to coordinate what's going on to there, either bringing additional resources in uh, from our medic pool um, or if we need an evac that, that we can't do, uh, how to coordinate out to either search and rescue or heli base or whatever, whatever it is. Sometimes it's uh, just uh, get this person up and, and get this person moving. Um, it's a different... Yeah. yeah, it's a different level of movement. I mean, wilderness versus pre-hospital is it's an entirely different thing. Oh, so yeah. uh, with, it's it's 99% about get that person out and then and then go from there. Exactly. So. That's really interesting. It, it kind of draws parallels to me when we talk about our tactical medicine programs, mm-hmm. because you can't bring your first in gear into a tactical environment. And I got to imagine it's pretty similar with you guys. I mean, you're not going to be able to carry a full run bag and a life pack 15, you know, as you're camping and riding, how do you make your decisions on what you carry? Yeah. Uh, a lot of it is weight dependent, uh, really focus on multi-use stuff, but it's really over time. It's really distilling down what are the nature of in this sport. Uh, and when this sport with these people who race, what, what are the nature of our, number one of our complaints. And then really what's the efficacy of what we can actually do? Cause you're right. You can't, can't ride around with a life pack. Yeah. Uh, you can't ride around with an oxygen tank. So if you're not riding around with an oxygen tank, you, you're probably not going to be riding around with an intubation roll yep. because you're not going to, um, you have to really start thinking about in my moment, what are my life saving, you know, what are my likely injuries and what are my life saving things? So it's, it's a healthy population. So while we could potentially have yeah. cardiac issues, that's really not at our forefront nor are there severe respiratory distress or other issues like that. Um, so we kind of put some, a lot of the medical stuff aside and, and people are adults and they should be making us aware and managing their, their own situation. Our, you know, obviously our number one issue is blunt trauma. Yeah. Uh, and so we're looking at life-saving, you know, interventions are really bleeding controls are number one. So we all carry multiple tourniquets, uh, wound packing, dressing, uh, stuff like that. Um, the secondary concern is really environmental. So are we, where are we and what's the weather going to be? Some of these races, even there in the summer, we're in snow. Sometimes we're in blazing heat. So, uh, I always carry a tarp. I always carry rope. I carry fire making stuff. I carry extra layers. I carry extra food and water. You carry a lot of environmental stuff under the assumption that if someone's needing evac, you're there potentially 24 hours plus, you know, and and what you're going to do with them. Um, other than that, uh, if we have availability, we carry epinephrine because, hey, everyone forgets their EpiPen. Yeah. But again, they're adults, so they yeah. should be bringing their own. Yeah. Um, uh, I've got a good story with that just from from two weeks ago. Um, we'll, we can get to. Um, yeah, uh, it's really it's really that's what it comes down to. And then it's then it's dealer's choice. So each medic kind of has their favorite things. Some people like compression sleeves to hold stuff on. I like a bunch of stuff that I use and I, I pack my own pack and bring it. But the. The issue is weight versus, so, uh, I'll bring a Sam splint. I certainly don't bring a traction splint, which is no good out in the wilderness anyway. Um, I, it's just over the years, you just learn, you know, you know, I'm 12 hours on a bike. How much am I willing, you know, willing to carry versus what I need to. Um, then there's a lot of customer service stuff, blister management, 
wound cleaning, yep. dressings. You'd be amazed that people are like, ah, <laughs> yeah. scraped my knee yeah. Yeah. Uh, and stuff like that. Um, Advil, uh, if you're in Europe, uh, you got to carry polysporin. The Europeans love, may need polysporin, which is like neosporin here in the yeah, US. Yeah. For some reason, that's a life-saving the intervention. Need, yeah, yeah must have it. Uh, so it's just stuff like that. Um, 99% of, I mean, there is some realization that has to happen, which is you are in an austere environment. You are hours, if not days away from definitive medical care. You may or may not have a search and rescue team available, depending on the race. You may or may not have a helicopter, depending on the location in the race. And this is a high risk sport. And it, it took me some years to really understand the idea. Like, yeah, the day will come. It hasn't come yet. Knocking on wood. That someone's gonna gonna damage themselves to the point of no return, uh, and that's gonna happen. You know whether whether I'm I'm there or not. Uh, it doesn't matter what tools I have at that point. So um, I hope that day doesn't come, but it's there. Probably the biggest tool that I use for the race uh, is we always do a pre-race briefing uh, for all the racers. And my job in that pre-race briefing is to scare the shit out of the riders. Uh, hey, here we are. We're in the mountains outside of Oaxaca, Mexico. They don't own a helicopter in the city. You're not going to get a helicopter in the city. Uh, we have no road access from the top to the bottom. So getting a truck to you means it won't happen, which means you're just, you know, hours away from an ambulance, let alone definitive care. And who knows what that definitive care is going to be. If you hurt, everyone says, oh, there's, there's paramedics, there's medics on this race. I'm going to send it, man. Yeah, I'm going to crush yeah. it. Well, they, people forget to understand that we're only there after the injury happens. Yeah. You know, we don't prevent, we're non-preventative. Yeah. Um, so we're just palliative when it comes down to it. So, you know, I, I really try to stress, if you hurt yourself, you're hurt and we'll do the best we can. Yeah. Um, if you don't hurt yourself, you're going to have a great week. Yeah. You know, and then I also remind them that of these 150 riders, only one of you is going to win, you know, so look around you. Yeah. Like, who's it going to be? Because yeah. it's not going to be you. <laughs> so just, you know, tamper down because they're five, six, six days of racing at, at the most extreme level. And it's, yeah. yeah. It's, so brains are, you know, and fear are the, maybe the two biggest wilderness survival tools. For yeah, sure. yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely have heard that from, you know, I've done some pretty decent level skiing in my mm -hmm. life. And I, I know that the people that I would ski with, they kind of make a decision based on where you are and what you're doing, yeah. how aggressively you're going to go. I yeah. mean, if it's, you know, if you're on a local mountain and, you know, there's a helicopter pad there and somebody, okay, you know, no big deal. But there are some times where you're on a hairy trail and the mountains close, it's middle of the night, nobody's around, your phone doesn't work, you yeah. don't have a radio. It's like, maybe we don't need to break the land speed record right yeah. now in this environment. Yeah, that's fair. Um, the step that gets further, even when you're off, when you're off piste or in the backcountry more is that you may be three minutes into your, your bike ride, but if you're riding at 20 miles an hour, you've already made distance. Yeah. And if you're only a half mile in the trail, what's the nature of the trail? That still may be hours to yeah. definitive care. Yeah. yeah. So, so everything, everything changes. Uh, and the understanding of how, um, emergency response operates and, and what your priorities are compared to front country versus back country is, is 100% different. Yeah. It changes, it changes everything. Even just as a provider, when I was early and I was new, I was like, Oh man, I, sh I need a full narc suite and I need, yeah. I need respiratory and I yeah. need, and I need, and I need, and I'm like, yeah, not, yeah. no, no, not, not here. Like there's, there's no, there's no room for that. There's no time for that. And also there's no need for that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Have you, just out of curiosity, you've been around the world doing this. Mm -hmm. Have you found certain areas that are really on the ball with what type of resources they're able to provide you based on the location versus other places you go where, you know, maybe it's one level three trauma center that's, you know, an hour and a half away and there's really no other resources. And does that affect how you brief your riders about kind of what's available. Yeah. It doesn't change how I brief my riders because my goal is to scare the shit out of them. Yeah, so I, I, I do that no matter what, but yeah, actually the, the irony is, is that the difference in resources is, is massive country to country and it's kind of bass accurate to what you'd expect. So the best available, um, kind of immediate resource, uh, resources I found to be in countries where you would expect almost the opposite and the worst in the countries you would expect the highest. So probably the best available resources I've had uh, in the back country, uh, is Nepal. Oh, really? Um, which was shocking. I ran, I ran a medic team for a race in the Menang region, way up in the Annapurna region of, of Nepal. And the expectation there is like, man, this is going to be, you know, we're, we're doomed. Uh, what was amazing is that they have, and when you step back and think about it, they have such a trekking history and so much of their infrastructure and, and consumer base is based off of the, the, the international trekking that it was really easy to switch that for us for mountain biking. So we ended up contracting to a specific hospital that was, oh, I mean, I think 15 hours by truck away or more, but only an hour by helicopter away. And we had a dedicated medical team, dedicated helicopter. They actually sent a physician with us. He couldn't ride a bike, but he was there. He was there. And, yeah. and, and the response time was going to be near immediate. So he, he had, was, his ability was to cut through all channels because he was within the administration of the hospital. So we didn't end up needing it, but had we needed an EVAC, which is kind of definitive care for us, uh, it would have been amazing. And just knowing we had that kind of backup resources, it was incredible. Like to, to know you had a, a heli evac within an hour is, is unheard of and, and amazing. Yeah. Uh, the place you'll never get that is the United States. Never. Yeah. It just doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, you know, you can get it in Canada. So I work in, in British Columbia, but, but they will say your helicopter response time is maybe within 24 hours, depending on what crew is available and what's, yeah. what's um, so that, that was interesting. And the other place I mentioned Mexico earlier, but Mexico also for, for different reasons, uh, on the one hand, if you're, if you are within the public medical system or just depending on public services, you're completely hosed, but it's, it's a corporate driven kind of financial system there. So our race, uh, through a family connection of the race director had a private ambulance service at our disposal. And I had a team of like 10 guys on this ambulance and they were super excited separate from the bikers. They had litters and they had wheels and they yeah. had everything and they came every day and they had a full, basically emergency suite in their ambulance. There was suturing, there was pain management, there was minor surgery. He could do everything. Wow. And, uh, and it was great. And if not, then they could transport to one of the private hospitals for definitive care. And, yeah. and we just, it was amazing because I only had to focus on the trail. And as soon as I got someone off the trail to them, my hands, I, hands were washed and, and they had better care than, yeah. than we could provide. So yeah, it, I'm finding that in countries where it's, um, well, it's financially based yeah. that, you know, here in, in the United States and the Canada and North America and in, and in other places, the expectation is of care, but expectation and the reality is, is different. Yeah. So yeah. Um, but my focus is always really on trail. Yeah. You know, my, my win is to get 
someone off the trail and to that secondary definitive care. So it's, you know, it, it depends where it is. Often if we can get to a base, it's ground-based anyway, and, and we can get them out. Um, but one of the challenges in, in working, not just being in the backcountry, but working in the backcountry is I may have an injured rider and it's easy to get really tunnel vision on that rider. And what mm-hmm. do I do for this person? And how do I get them out? And, oh, I need, we need to carry and I need all these people, but I still have 149 other racers on the same course and the race progresses. So it's, it's a management resource management just internally as well. And, and how do we, uh, kind of address in an in individual's needs, but also if there's the collective, the collective need as well, our responsibility doesn't stop when someone gets hurt. We have all the other people as well. Yeah. I've noticed the more I talk to wilderness folks, the, how in conventional medicine, we're so focused on like the immediate, like 10 foot radius of where we are, this patient, we're going to get him down this stairwell into this ambulance and go to a hospital that's 15, 20, 30 minutes away. And kind of the concept of wilderness, how that, you know, that span of control just opens up so wide about like, even you talking about like, okay, maybe you have a broken arm, but maybe it's a broken arm for two, three days before you can get them care as opposed to here. It's like, well, just splint it and then the doctor can look at it in 10 minutes, yeah. right? No, it's it's this concept of not only do you have a broken arm, but you also have a rider who may or may not be dressed appropriately for the overnight weather, you know, who may or may not have enough food because they were planning on being done with the course in 10 minutes. And now they're, you know, an hour and a half, two hours away from base. And I, I think it's so interesting how in conventional EMS so many times, how many times you've been to a call where it's like, oh, don't move, sir. Like, we'll move you. We'll put you on the backboard. And, and this, you know, talking to Dr. Schlein, everything, sometimes wilderness is like, I know you have a broken collarbone. We're still an hour away from the trailhead and your legs work. We're going to need oh, to make it. I'm that, sorry. Yeah. Which is, which is an, an excellent point and a real focus. Like your, your definition of what definitive care is, is completely different in the back country than, than in the front country. And, and, uh, you know, and, and Sarah Schlein, she's got a lot of experience as well. And, and that, um, that ability to move, what is definitive care? Well, definitive care is getting this person off the mountain. That's, that is the definitive care. Nothing else is going to happen yeah. unless I can get them off. So the, the equation is not like, oh, what do I need to do? It's just what's going to happen in the best way. To, what's, what's the best way to achieve this? Um, I just had a guy two weeks ago who um, we were riding, actually, ironically, he was a fellow medic yeah. uh, for the race. And we were transitioning way up on a, on a ridgeline to get to the top, to get to the next race. And we were on a, just a, we were cut a cut around on an access road and he was daydreaming and we were cruising down the road to get some speed up, to get up to this next pitch. And he didn't notice this tree that was pointing out into the road, uh, kind of like a jousting, like a, yeah. like a joust. And he rode just straight into it. Uh, unbelievably, uh, he nailed it with his, with his left lower quadrant of his abdomen, missed his iliac crest, missed his ribs, like couldn't have hit a better spot, except that, I mean, at 15 to 20 miles an hour, he just, just dead stop on this tree. Uh, luckily it, it, it didn't penetrate, but it whipped him off his bike. Um, he had ended up rupturing his abdominal wall. He had, um, a herniated large intestine. He had a massive hematoma, like, like, like soccer ball size yeah. on his abdomen within seconds. Uh, and we found out later that he actually had also uh, broken his T5 spinal process from, oh, from the impact on the ground. So, and we're way up in the middle of nowhere and worst case scenario, he's a paramedic. So I was right ahead of him. I heard this noise and I turn around and it was just the three of us up there and, uh, and I just see him on the ground and I immediately go back to him and he's already completely diagnosed and figured it out. He's like, 
dudes, I've totally fucked my guts. I fucked them. Yeah. And I'm like, all right, man, see that. I yeah. see that. And he's like, and you know, I'm like, great. But you know, I had to fight him off to let me do my own assessment. I do my own assessment and yeah, he's, he's messed up, but yeah. he's writhing in pain. He's got full neuro involvement. He's moving. And I'm like, great. I need you to stand up. Oh no, I can't, I can't do it. I'm like, I need you to stand up. So, I mean, my first spinal assessment is like, he's neurologically intact and he's fine. Uh, he's already got this at uh, the softball size hematoma. I've already palped his belly and it's, it's, he's okay. Like clearly he's messed up, but he's okay. Uh, he's, he's, you know, not shocky yet. He's not pale. He's not diaphoretic. He's just in a whole lot of pain, but he's decided that he can't move and, and he can do it. And the problem is, is that if he can't move at that point, I've got to shut the entire race because I've got three medics locked out, which means they can't run the race if three of the six aren't there. Mm -hmm. And more importantly, we're hours, just literally hours yeah. away. Um, so, uh, and you know, to get a team up there and to carry them out is, is uh, the rest of the day easy, if not into the night, not to mention the fact that if he's hemorrhaging, that's not acceptable. Right. So either way, I've got a huge problem. Either yeah. he's hemorrhaging and I need to get him out immediately yeah. or he's not hemorrhaging and I'm going to waste 15 hours to get him out. Yeah. Right? So, you know, he, he's got that adrenaline rush. I'm like, I need you on your feet. And this is the number one thing. That's my number one thing going into a new patient. Like, Hey, wow, that really looks painful. I can see that you're bad, but can you stand? Yeah. Just like an MCI. Yeah. Right. Like, Oh boy, your leg is jutting off at a 90 degree angle. Hey, can you stand? Yeah. Because even then if I can get them on one foot and I can shoulder them out, we're, we're better. So this guy's lying on the ground. He's got this massive hematoma. He's clearly messed himself up and, and he's the worst case scenario. He's a paramedic. Yeah. He's, so he's decided that he's, it's all over. He's it's, diagnosed, yeah, it's, yeah. it's all over. And yeah. he's like kept palping his own belly. I'm like, put your hands away. Yeah. So I'm like, I need you to stand up. Oh, I, I just need a minute. I just need a minute. I'm like, I understand you need a minute, but I can't give it to you. Yeah. Right. Because you get that a massive adrenaline rush, right? You've got, you've got, you've got, you know, everyone talks about like the golden hour to get to definitive care. I, I don't give a shit about that in the wilderness. Like that's a, that's a textbook wilderness thing. I'd call it the golden five minutes. You've yeah. got maybe three to five minutes of that massive adrenaline rush to get someone up and on their feet. Get the momentum in the momentum, right? Yeah. Because if you, if you lose that momentum yeah. and their adrenaline crashes yeah. and then they start feeling shit and then the pain kicks in yeah. and then they start getting air quotes shocky, right? There's, there's real shock. And then there's the emotional shock and just yeah. the, the pain. And, and then they curl up in that fetal position, then you're host. Mm -hmm. So this guy was definitely going right there. And he yeah. kept like, Oh, and I got him up to sit up and he's like, yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, no, this is not good. I've really, I've really fucked up my guts. That's what he kept saying. Yeah. That was his medical diagnosis. Yeah. Like, Fuck my guts. Like, I understand that. But like patient, not you're the patient. I'm the provider. Yeah. Now I need you on your knee. Like it was one step at the time. I need you on your knees. I need on this yeah. and got him on his feet and you know, and he was miserable uh, and kind of holding his belly and I got him next to his bike. So I'm like, lean on this. And we started walking. So I had him off the ground and, and moving within, I would say three, three, three and a half minutes. Yeah. And that was the proper emergency response for this guy, right? Like I'm not going to repair his abdominal wall. Correct. Dude. I'm not going to do anything to, to prevent his, um, herniation or any internal hemorrhage. I'm not going to do any of that, but, but what's going to save his life is getting to definitive care. What's going to kill him is 12 to 15 hours to get to definitive care, or he's well enough to do it. And I want to get him out so that I can go about the race. So there's, there's only one option there. And that's, 
the irony is, is that that's effective medical care, not, well, oh, he might be hernia, he might be hemorrhaging internally and I've got to keep his pressure up and I got to get an IV. Yeah. Well, I'm not carrying IV fluids because I'm, I'm not going to carry IV fluids. And so it, it's that and immediate communication. So I'm on the radio immediately back to, back to the base and to the race director and, and, and stating, here's what I have. Here's what's happening. Here's where I'm coming with it. Uh, and then we had a massive stroke of luck. So about half an hour out of our evac, getting him back up and out this, this fire road that we were going to go all the way back down to the camp. Uh, some of the photographers came up in their truck. And so I kicked them out of their truck, threw him in the truck. There's nothing I can do. So here's another pre-hospital thing, right? So it's not abandonment because I didn't do any paramedic interventions on him and I'm not doing anything. Yeah. I'm not technically operating as a fully licensed paramedic. Yeah. I'm a wilderness medical provider. Yeah. I've got a driver of this truck and I've got 150 racers that I've got to get back to in stage yeah. four in case they do it. So driver of the truck, here's what's going on. I want you to keep talking to him, keep him alert. He's going to tell you everything that's wrong with him. Ignore that. Oh, perfect. Get him yeah. to the hospital as quickly as you can safely. Yeah. I know the race director already knows off you go. And then he's gone. And then I'm back to the race and, and I go do it. So that, that, that ability to, to get to a person quickly, assess them really effectively and understanding what your priorities are, not, oh, like my protocol says I must splint this and I must do this. It's what's, you know, what's the life threat here? What's the, what's the worst potential? What's the best potential? And how do I make a goal that achieves both? And then doing it quickly, uh, you know, movement is a big thing. And, and a huge part of that comes from the confidence of, well, I've treated enough trauma in the pre-hospital setting. I've touched yeah. patients so many times that I understand what mechanism and I understand but also just what the impact and what the potential is. And, you know, counter to most people, you're like, don't touch them, don't move them. I mean, it's the exact opposite. Anybody who can move, moves. I don't care what's broken or what's, what's not. And my assessment is around that because definitive care is getting out. Yeah. Um, yeah. Versus here in, the, in pre-hospital, our definitive care is... Go move, we'll carry you. Yeah, like, we'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, and mitigating risk, right? Yeah. You know, um, you know, being risky is what being in the backcountry is all about. So we don't we don't mitigate risk. We we address it and we try to plan plan for it, but also we we just deal with it and the you know and the consequences. It's we're we're much more focused on effectively managing consequence because we've all accepted that we're all taking a risk. Um, and the irony is, is that almost every race I work, one of my medics is knock on wood, has been me yeah. is an evac at yeah. some point because we're having too much fun as yeah. well. So. Fair enough. That's really interesting. I, I, we had a podcast with Andy Spire, who's uh, runs a wilderness team and tech rescue out mm -hmm. in Washington. He was the technical editor for fire rescue magazine. Mm -hmm. We talked to him a lot. And one of the things he mentioned that I didn't even think about is this idea of the psychological component for prolonged extrications where, you know, if I, if I go to somebody that's hurt in the ambulance, I may see them for 15 or 20 minutes. And if I don't really spend a lot of time talking with them or paying attention to them or giving them the, you know, the, the mental care that they need, it's not the end of the world. They'll right. be okay. The nurse is going to make friends with them at the hospital. They'll get a care team. But Andy Spire was talking about how, you know, you, you're with these patients sometimes for 10, 12, 14, 20 hours on a carry out, like, you can't just not talk to mm -hmm. them. I mean, they they are so in their own head with what's going on that he mentioned how he noticed, you know, they had the the carryout team and then the backup carryout team, they're swapping back yep. and forth. And he noticed the rescuers are all talking to each other, but no one's really, it's almost like they're just shopping in the grocery store. Nobody's really talking to the patient. Yep. And 
he was mentioning how important it is. And I was thinking you were mentioning, you know, 24 hours making mm-hmm. a fire. Like you almost have, it's like a floor nurse. You have to like get to know these people and take care of their, all their needs, not yep. just the injury. Oh, absolutely. And they're, they're also become your partner in care, right? Yeah. Like you're, whereas we do our thing in the ambulance and work on, and you involve your patient and you talk to them and you get the history. This is, it's much more involved. Like you're in it together. And, and more importantly, you need them present and you need them interactive. And, uh, if, if you're doing, um, three, four five hours of, of walkout with an injured or sick or debilitated person, you need to know from them, uh, you know, a what's going on, right? Because they're the first ones to let you know, but you also need to know from them that they trust you because if you're not building that rapport with them, there are times you need them to do things like you need them to move and they don't want to move or you need them to take a break and they don't want to take a break or you know, there's certain things that you yeah. know that they need to do and, and they don't, they don't want to do it. So you as an expert, you know, kind of present and that kind of confidence is really, really important. I just had a guy who, uh, I was, I was at a stage start and a bunch of racers came up from the transition and they said, Oh, there's a guy back there who got stung and he's, he's got an allergic reaction and, and he can't breathe. He says he can't breathe. And, you know, and, that's terrible, yeah. obviously, because a we're way out in the middle of nowhere in, yeah. the, in the mountains of British Columbia, but also don't know how far back and where. And then I, so, so that was a, that was a good point. So I, it was a hike back and I hiked and I hiked and I hiked. Um, meantime, I'm in my mind prepping for worst case scenario, yeah. uh, which would have been a surgical crike. Yeah. Um, uh, I didn't know if he had his own EpiPen or not. All the racers who need them were informed they better have them. Yeah. And, but I don't carry a surgical crack kit and I don't care, but I have a multi-tool and I have a camel back with a hose. And so I built this whole system. I had, here's yeah. what I'm going to do. Here's yeah. how I'm going to do it. You know, holy shit, yeah. but I'm going to do, you know, and that's really important, right? Because there's no time when you, you, you've got all this time to get to them. So, yeah. so, and it was about five minutes back. And I had, at that point, I'm like, well, if he's had an allergic reaction and it took a racer five minutes to get to me, and it's taking me five minutes to get back, like a, I got to be ready to go yeah. in immediately. So I get there and there's this guy on the ground surrounded by everyone. And his friend's like, Oh my God, Oh my God. And I look at him and the guy's sitting upright and he's pink and he's perfused. And I'm uh, like, yeah. I'm like, what's going on? He said, I don't know. I felt a sharp pain and I'm allergic. I said, well, what are you allergic to? And he said, horses. And I said, well, I don't <laughs> think it was a horse. Yeah, horse he biking. said, well, also wasps. I was like, okay, well let's lead with that one yeah, next yeah. time. <laughs> and, uh, and so, uh, and I said, well, what's going on? He said, well, I felt my, my, my neck was getting probably my, my, face was getting all swollen. And this was like seven hours into a massively huge day. And he was a little bit older and he was also really cooked. You could yeah. just tell. And I looked, I was like, well, you know, open your airway. This, from this. I'm like, you're talking. I said, are you having a hard time breathing? He said, well, it was getting really hard. I said, well, you look really okay right now. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, look, your airway's open. I'm looking at your tongue. You're not swollen. And I'm I'm giving him the full treatment. I'm feeling his neck. I'm like, yeah, oh, that feels great. And yeah. I'm just giving him like positive, yeah. full on positive vibes. Yeah. Like, you look so good. I'm, wow, I was really worried. And that sounds really terrifying. But look, this is, and he said, oh, he said, and I, he just verbalized. He said, I think I'm okay. He said, I think I just needed somebody to tell me that I, who knows, who knows about it, that I'm okay. I'm like, well, you are okay. And I was like, now, what do you want to do? You can turn around and ride six hours back. Or you can finish, you know, there's a race up here. You can finish. He's like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to finish. And I'm like, great. Oh, so, perfect. so there you go. Definitive <laughs> care. Right. I mean, but it could have easily been the, it could have, you know, it could yeah. have been, and he had no EpiPen and he'd never been diagnosed for an EpiPen, but he said, sometimes I get some facial swelling and I'm like, man, get yourself an EpiPen. You, you gotta know? figure that out. Come on. You can't figure it out here without EpiPen. Yeah. Come on, man. Come on. That's so, interesting. That's, you know, it's, it's stuff like that. Like it's that, you know, it's that rapport of being like, Here's what I see. I take no bullshit. Yeah. This is what you need to know. I mean, yeah. 
I, I'm not as nice in the backcountry as I am on an ambulance. Yeah. Uh, and it's just because there's no room, there's no room for it. I will, once we're evacing and once I'm with it, I'm fully supportive. Like, I got you. We're good. How are you doing? But in that moment of like, I need you to go left or I need, or I want you to go right. Like, here's, here's, I'm going to just push you, push you, push you. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's funny. I, I was just thinking in my head, but I worked the marathon, I worked the marathon every year and mm-hmm. I worked the marathon this last um, spot and it's, it's, got some wilderness elements to it just yep. because you're out in the course and there it's not really conventional medicine and you only really get an ambulance if you absolutely need one and that being said in district three it's kind of hit or miss and i had an experience where an older woman i got a report that old woman had a broken arm i was like oh man and where is she oh she's still running i said okay so mm-hmm. i you know i expect to go over there and see you know like somebody sitting on the ground doing whatever we go down the course and there's this older woman that's running with a sure enough broken yeah. arm. Like it is broken. And, you know, it looks like the silver spoon, big, huge hematoma and everything. She's got it. She's carrying her arm. I was like, hey, can I split that for you? Do you want an ambulance? No, 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 no. I'm I'm here. I'm at like mile, whatever it was, you know, yep. uh, 22 or something. And she's like, I'm not stopping. You will not stop me. I was like, okay, you feel okay? She's like, other than the broken arm. Yeah, like I'm fine. I said, all right, let me at least splint it. And you can keep running. She was like, I can't, I can't lose my momentum. I'm like, well, I'll splint it while you're running. So I ran next to her nice. with a bike patroller and splinted it. And it was funny because every fiber of my being of conventional medicine was like, you can't do this. You got to bring yeah. him to the hospital. Like, what will the medical director say? Like, she had a broken arm and you let her go. You can't 1090. And I just thought in my head is like, she's healthy. Yeah. There's people along the course that she can get. She's with a group of runners. Like they have phones. Like if something bad happens, she can call. I said, hey, do you want these services? No, no, no. Hey, can I at least make you more comfortable while you run so it doesn't get more, like, get worse? Okay, yeah. And then there she was with her little splint. We tucked it in her shirt, and she ran off and finished the race. And I saw her at the tent at the end. She's like, hey, thank you so much. And just that concept of not everything is, like, protocol driven. You don't have to call the medical director every single second. Some of these situations, you got to kind of change what you've always done and think about what's the most good for this human being? Is there anything I can do? that she'll accept to make it better, even if she doesn't exactly take my recommended care plan. Yeah. Well, and, and a race is an interesting beast, right? People work for it, prepare for it, put the energy into it and they're doing it and they want to succeed and they've got that drive to succeed. And it's still right. It's their consent. It's their choice. And oh, the number of times I've looked at a guy and been like, I really think you should be done. And they look back and I'm like, no. And they're like, Okay, have buddy. a great, have a yeah. great day. Yeah. Find me, find me at the finish. Cause you're going to feel uh, terrible. I had a guy, uh, I had a guy in New Zealand who, uh, degloved his face. That's not good. Uh, he face planted into the ground and caught a bunch of dirt under his lower lip and it literally degloved his jaw and he raced the day and he got to the end. And he's like, Hey, do I need to go maybe get this cleaned out? And he pulled his bottom lip out and it, one was full of dirt, but I could see his entire jaw. Inside. Oh, man. And I looked and I was like, we'll be going now. Yeah. You know? And he was like, hey, I thought so. I'm like, yeah, I think so. And I can't imagine a universe where I could go hours and hours and hours yeah. with a degloved jaw. I know. Uh, not to mention that it was just the coolest thing ever. Yeah. Like, I don't, I'll never see that again in my life. But right, that desire to finish and that is great. And I, I'll use that. Like, we'll use that all the time. I mean, that's the difference. 
a race versus just being in the backcountry. It's different. But but your point about the marathon being basically wilderness is is not wrong. Like the definition of what wilderness is, uh, I think, is really misconstrued. So it's easy for me. I talk to him like, oh, we're way out in the mountains yeah. and we're way out there. But like as a kid, I used to play in the woods. Right. Yeah. I still do sometimes near my house yeah. with my buddy and the crap we did. And, you know, 20 yards into the trees is wilderness if no one knows where you are. Right. And if you can't move, you can't get out. Or if you need to move someone, you could be a quarter mile in a trail, but it's the most technical trail. Or you could be 30 miles in a trail and it's super smooth. It just depends. You know, it's 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 not about where you are. It's more about what you are and what's going on at that at that point. And a marathon is the same thing. And you're right. But yeah, that's an interesting case. I mean, I would get that all the time. Con tons of people concussed unresponsive on the trail come to I'm getting on my bike, you know, like, no, you are not. Like, I'm getting on my bike. Like, you know, and, and eventually they get on their bike and most of the times they get back off their yeah. bike, but sometimes they won't. And, yeah. and, you know, there's not much, what we'll do in, in a race situation is actually if they ride off, they ride off. But at the end of the day, they'll have to go get a full eval. Like, yeah. They'll have to go to the hospital, get an eval and have a doctor's note yeah. saying they can, they can race. But you know, most of the time it's, yeah. it's people's choice and you see some really dumb choices and sometimes, yeah, you know, yeah. some smart enough. choices. Yeah. Um, just, so the other question I had is, um, more logistics, just cause mm -hmm. we have people that listen that are interested in that kind of sure. thing. If you have an injured rider, how would you go about referring your location to someone else? Is it GPS? Is it coordinate trail markers, mile marker, kilometers? Yeah, it depends. It depends on the situation yeah. and, the, and the location. So most times if, uh, most times if we're on, on a, a race and if we can move them, yeah. we'll move them down to a spot that we'll coordinate yeah. either a truck pickup and, and we have all everything mapped out. And so we'll radio down to our race director and be like, Hey, I need a truck at on this, we're on this trail. I need them at the road crossing and I need the, you know, yeah. this one. if we're going towards search and rescue and other things, uh, I mean the, the best is, is just your, your data points and your, your lat longitude and, and Gaia maps is amazing for that. So yeah. if you're coordinating out, so we've had some heli evacs in New Zealand, for example, because their helicopter system is great. Yeah. Um, and they use it a, a ton. So that's super easy. You just, you ping them. And, and if we have a New Zealand, like, uh, I work with a good friend of mine who's a paramedic in New Zealand and I just let her do it because she's in the ambulance system. And so she's got it all set up and yeah. she just calls it in. If you're somewhere else, it's just, it's literally just like, Hey, here's my, here, you know, here's my Gaia points. There, there are some apps. Uh, there's a trail forks app, which can send your location. If you get cell phone, cell phone service, that's going to give you a location. Uh, I always, always ride with a spot. Uh, I'm sorry, with an in reach, a Garmin in reach, which is a satellite messenger, which will ping, uh, my, my coordinates right to search and rescue. Um, really any of it, as long as you've got it, if, if you, you know, if you have verbal communication, it's, you give your best verbal, like, oh, I'm, and, and it's really important to talk about method of transportation. Oh, I'm 10 minutes down this trail. Well, are you 10 minutes down by foot? Are you 10 minutes by bike? Are you on UTV or what, you know, what is it you're yeah. doing? And it's that awareness, awareness, where, but, uh, you know, having communication is also definitive care. Uh, when I first started working in races, it was all cell phone dependent or also just, hey, here's a really gnarly spot. We need a medic there. And it's like, well, great. If someone falls at my feet, I can help them. But yeah. if they fall, yeah. you know, 100 yards away, I won't even know it. So and the same thing, if I can't if, if I'm responding to someone and I'm here, but I can't let anyone know where they are, whether I'm the injured party or I'm the, the rescuer, 
then there is no definitive care, right? Like if, if I couldn't get this guy out who, who burst his abdominal wall and I had to station in that spot, well, if I can't tell anybody, then I'm, uh, then he's host. Yeah. Right? There's, there's, so communication is, is absolutely definitive care. So if you're going to a spot that you know that you have no communications with, you're not sure your cell phone's going to work. And that includes local hiking and mountain bike trails here. Then not having some sort of far reaching communication devices is, is insane to me. Yeah. So I ride with it. It's called an, uh, I don't get money from them or yeah, anything, yeah, but yeah. a Garmin inReach mini. Yeah. So it's, it's tiny. It's the size of like a matchbox and it has full satellite communication and will transmit my, my location. Oh, perfect. Um, and you can also use it to text home if you're running late and yeah. stuff like that, which is actually really good because yeah, it can if, be helpful. You know, sometimes it's, Oh, I've got it. I'm, you know, my bike is blown up. I'm going to be five hours later than I expected. And I've got no cell service. Like that's, you know, you don't want it. You don't want rescue triggered because you didn't show up. Um, so yeah, communications to everything, both on, both as a worker, but also as just someone who's in the backcountry. Yeah. Do you see any, do you ever have a situation where you have like a either lost or disoriented biker? Is that under your umbrella? If, you know, the race is like scheduled to end and all of a sudden like you're missing one person, is it your job to kind of go locate them or is that race staff? Yeah, it depends on the race. Yeah. Uh, We push really hard for that to be race staff. Yeah. Uh, We tend to be, our focus is we're there for emergency medical response. And if we're dragged off, because sometimes people's bikes break and and they get hours on. So every race will have someone, it's called a sweeper. Yeah. They always have someone who comes behind. Sometimes though, people take a wrong turn and get behind that sweeper. And if needed, we'll, we'll, you know, it's not really a medical response, then we'll send we'll send people out. Pretty much everyone gets found. Yeah. Uh, I've never, I've never knock on wood, never had anyone just completely lost, but yeah. every now and then you hear, I mean, it's part of the challenge of the race is the navigating of it too. So they're, in, they're told to pay close attention and it's marked and it's, they, if they're adults, they should be able to find their way. And hopefully with the population you were mentioning, like by this point in their career, making it to these level of races for the most part, they should know how yeah, to follow a trail. They should, but you'd yeah. be surprised. <laughs> Often it's the pros that have yeah. the hardest time. I mean, we, yeah. So you never, you never know, but yeah, actual, like, I mean, keeping the race together is the race organizers. Our job is there to be available for, for emergency response. Yeah. And, and we work really independently of the actual race. And, and I, I do that on purpose for all the races I run. I pretty much tell them to butt out and not tell yeah. me what to do. Yeah. And I won't tell them what to do. Yeah, fair enough. And we do us because, you know, it's an expertise that they don't have. That's great. Um, yeah, and, it, and it's really important that we don't get stuck. If I have one of my medics that's following someone who's got two flat tires and is hours behind the race because of two flat tires, then I'm short one medic to help someone who gets hurt. Exactly. So the race has to provide someone to, to take care of that person. Yeah. So if we had any listeners that were like, man, this is so cool. I really yeah. want to get into that. I really want to get into this type of medical work. Yeah. Do you have any advice for them? I do. Uh, it's hard. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to get into. Um, there are tons of wilderness EMT or wilderness first woofer programs or woofa programs. And that's great. Uh, I strongly recommend anyone who recreates in the backcountry to have just an awareness of what it takes. Um, but to work in the field, you need a couple more things. Um, if the first thing I would say is if you want to work in the medical field in the backcountry, that you figure out quickly what you want to do. Are you doing, do you want to do expeditions? Do you want to do hiking? Do you want to do ultra marathons? Do you want to do mountain biking? And if that's what you want to do, then become exceptionally proficient in the sport. 
Um, I, I can't, you know, I get people all the time who are like, oh, I, can I come and do that with you? And I'm like, great, do you mountain bike? Oh, I love to mountain bike. Well, talk to me about, you know, what your mountain bike skills are. And, and they're just, they're just not there. Like, yeah. You know, I need people who have done these races so that they understand what's involved to get through it. So if you don't have the technical expertise in the backcountry experience, uh, if you've never hiked before and you don't understand what it means to be in the backcountry, if you've never run and you don't understand what it means to be in a marathon, ultra marathon, you know, that's, you're no good. Um, and that's a challenge for people because I get people all the time. Like, I, oh, I, I want to do this. So, so that's, that's an important thing is, is be proficient in the, in what you want to do. I mean, I got into this after racing and, and most of the people who I end up bringing onto my teams are either former racers or I've ridden with, or I, I need to know that they can do it. There, there've been multiple situations where a racist said, Oh, I've got this person who I've told can be on your medic team. And, uh, they're just, they may be amazing, but they're, they're just worthless on a bike, um, which does no good to me. So that's the number one thing. The secondary thing is, is yes, get your certifications. Certifications are good. They're helpful, but they are no substitute for actual experience. True. Uh, I get all the time, like, Oh, I'm a, a former racer and I've been a guide and all this, and I've got my woofa and this. And my next question is like, well, great. I know you can ride and I know you can get to the patient. I said, how many patient con real patient contacts have you ever had? And they're like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, well, how many people have you like touched and done yeah. and done? Like, Oh, well, I mean, there was this time like four years ago that I was on this canoe trip and my cousin fell and cut his elbow and, Oh, I splinted it and I bandaged it. Yeah. It was amazing. And I'm like, that's great. Yeah. yeah. Good for you. <laughs> Uh, I got no time for that person. Yeah. Um, so I will take onto my team, a former racer who has worked. Uh, I've, I've got a couple of guys from BC who are firefighters. Uh, they have some rudimentary medical skills, but man, they know how to package and move oh, and, yeah. Yeah. and, and they know what their assessment is new and they know when to call someone else in Yeah, and that's heaven Important. and they can ride and they can do all that. And, and they also make great hors d'oeuvres. So that's, yeah, that's perfect. perfect. Yeah. You know, I'll bring those guys in long before I'll bring someone in who's like, oh, I used to race and I've, I've got a woofa. You know, yeah. Or, or I had a woofa or I'm a ski patroller, like people who have their own experience, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it translates out. Um, yeah. And it, and it goes to what we were talking about earlier is like, I don't really need someone who can splint. I need someone who can show up on scene and within a minute assess appropriately, triage appropriately and plan appropriately. Yeah. And know if they need more definitive care. So often in my team of five medics, I may be the one or two of us may be the only higher medical providers. Well, that's totally fine. You've triaged and assessed and done. And if you need me, I'll, I'll get there. Like, but, but I already know that you've done what needs to get done in that moment. And if there's more I can do, I'll come and do it. Or if you have a question, I'll come and we'll discuss. And that's, that's totally fine. Um, but what I can't have is someone roll in and be like, yeah, I've got it. I'm, I'm a woofer but I've known, I've never assessed a patient. Yeah. So my favorite people are, uh, people who work on it uh, in pre-hospital care, uh, and also work in the, you know, recreate hard in the backcountry because they have their patient contacts and they have their assessment and I can trust that they know what they're doing. Um, the people who are, I start getting a little iffy about, and I don't, I don't mean to rather, I like often, physicians, PAs, uh, people who work in a clinical setting, yeah, uh, all of the medical knowledge in the world. And they're maybe amazing in the backcountry, 
but they don't actually have any pre-hospital, out-of-hospital assessment experience, yeah. right? They're used to patients being packaged and brought to them. Mm-hmm. And as we talked about, 99% of what we do in the backcountry is is assessment-based and, and understanding that process. So Yeah. As you were describing that, I was just thinking, you know, we do a lot with like learning styles for CAPSI. We have to do a lot of that kind of background information for course development. And there's this concept of like, classical decision-making versus naturalistic Mm decision-making where classical is like, okay. And you start taking in information, then you identify problems, then you start like theorizing what the strategies will be. And then you institute those strategies and then you hopefully adjust your approach to make sure that everything works versus naturalization, which is like, oh yeah, that looks bad. I had something that was like that similar. I did this, it worked good. And I think it seems to me like what you're describing is you're really looking for those people that have the mountain biking skills and the medical assessment skills as kind of a naturalistic method where they can talk on the radio, look at a human being, triage multiple patients while riding their bike and kind of make those decisions on the fly, you know, and, uh, I almost equate it to like a hockey referee. Mm -hmm. Like you have to be a good hockey player to be a good hockey referee. You could read the rule book and you could probably identify each rule one by one. But if you can't skate and stay out of the way of the puck and look at a player and look at his eyes and know where he's going to pass the puck and move so that you're not in his way, you're just going to be a terrible referee. Exactly. You got to like, you got to know what they're going to do before they're going to do it. You got to be able to skate while thinking, while calling a play, while talking to your other guy, you know, and it seems like what you're saying is really start to work on developing those naturalistic yep. rhythms. You know, I think what, that's an amazing analogy. I think that's perfect. Yeah. yeah. Right. Because I don't have a time as a, as a team leader to there is no time in the field to bring you up to speed. There's and no preceptorship. Yeah, there's no preceptorship. <laughs> like it's, if you're there, you're there. And, yeah. I've, and I've had people come on a team and within the first day, because the first day is always our busiest because yeah. people are super going home, look at me and just be like, I, I, I just don't think I should be here. And, yep. You know, I'm like, well, that's okay. Like yeah. we'll work through it and, and I'll use them as communicators and spots, but right. Like maybe we'll de-emphasize your access to, to patients. And, and, it's some of it is just happenstance. I, I had a, a, a woman I've worked with. She's great. And she's worked three years on a race and somehow had managed to not ever really respond. And she was an ICU nurse yep. and she was super competent. And then we had a, a racer fall and wedge her arm in between two rocks and fully dislocate her elbow and displace it. It was horrible oh. and awesome. But yeah. Horrible. Yeah. I wasn't there, but this woman gets on the radio and like, and I hear the writer who actually was a friend of mine screaming, just screaming. And my medic was like, what do I do? (laughs) Well, it's an elbow. So you get her onto her feet. Like, no, she won't move. I'm like, it's going to feel so much better when it's neutral position and she's standing and then she can walk because what else? And so it was just a coaching through and it was great. And after that call and and it all ended up really well. And I got one of my other medics over there with some pain meds and it was great. Yeah. Um, after my call, she came over. She's like, oh my God, oh my God, it's been three years. I, I have no idea what I'm doing. Yeah. I was like, and yet your patient's fine. Yeah. And like, you knew when to call for her. Like some of it is just working through the system, but, but right. Like actual patient contact, uh, is yeah, it's rare. It's, I mean, there's a reason why I pull my medics from New Zealand, Canada, the United States, um, Australia, all over the world, because it's rare to find these people that, you know, have the kind of the confluence of, of bike skills, medical skills, backcountry skills. So, oh yeah. yeah. I always think of it as like my, I've talked about this before on the show, but my general metric for how comfortable a lead provider is on a medical call is like a opiate overdose, not mm-hmm. breathing, still as a pulse, not breathing. I've been to somewhere it's like 
the Swedish chef ripping the bag apart, yeah. dragging them by their ankles through the Walmart parking lot, screaming on the radio. And, you know, you're like, okay. And then mm-hmm. I've been to other ones where, you know, you get the Tim Ferriss's and I'm like, okay, not breathing. All right, let's yeah. get that BVM out. Does anybody need clinical skills? Let's get this done. You know, and like. Yeah, I can't believe you just threw Tim Ferriss a bone like that. I know, right? Mm-hmm. I know. But like, to me, that's, that's such a, a good example of like that classical yeah. versus naturalistic method, yep. you know, and. I think you have a great point of making sure that, you know, it's as cliche as possible, but don't become part of the problem. And I think putting providers in an environment where someone's screaming and having providers screaming is like the worst. It's so difficult. You know, you're supposed to be the professional, you know, that whole analogy of like the garbage man doesn't freak out when there's garbage on the street. So if you're a bike medic and someone gets their arm terribly disfigured, yeah. Yeah. Like that's literally what you're there for. Exactly. So try to take a breath, try to work through it, you know, and when in doubt, like just walk it out, man, just get them up and, and get them moving. And I really like that whole momentum piece. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Well, it, it is an overlooked, I mean, it, it, it is definitive care in the backcountry. If they can move, the best thing for them is to move. Yeah. If they can't move, the best thing for them is still to move. It's just figuring out how to make that yeah. happen. There, there is no operating suite, right? Yeah. Especially, I mean, the, the definitive care is elsewhere. Yeah. So you have to, you know, your number one focus is on how to, how to get them there, how to manage them to get there. Yeah. Like, are you managing symptoms? Are you managing pain? Are you managing, right? So just because we, I may not carry narc suites, we have tons of pain management, splinting, distraction, mm-hmm. all the sorts of things that we can do. We do a ton of oh, in yeah. the backcountry. Like, ooh, man, it hurts too much. Like, I know it hurts, but it's actually going to feel better when you start walking because here's why. And you manage yeah. them through that and then they see that and it's, yeah, there's nothing worse than sitting still. Yeah. Uh-huh. It reminds me of my time on Williston. We used to go to some pretty significant car wrecks mm-hmm. and almost always you would go and the car would be completely destroyed. And sure enough, there's the driver out on the on the side of the road ripping a cigarette because that's yeah. what they always do after they wreck always. their car. And I remember one of the things I picked up there is like, if they can move, get them to the ambulance yeah. because in 10 minutes, their bodies can be like, uh, remember that time you were in a car crash and your car got folded like a piece of bubble gum. And we had a, a wreck on the bell line probably a year ago. And this guy got smashed at 55 miles an hour from behind from, he was stopped in the shoulder and got hit mm-hmm. 50 miles and 55 miles an hour from behind. And the car was like a crumpled mess. There he is smoking a cigarette. And we didn't get a lot of wrecks in Burlington. I remember being like, all right, man, come on, let's go. Like, let's get on the stretcher. Let's get on the stretcher. You know? And everyone's like, what are you doing, man? He doesn't want to go to the hospital. I'm like, oh, he's going to want to go to the hospital. I'm like, come on, come on, come on. I get him on the stretcher probably about five minutes into the trip. He's like, I can't move the muscle from my toes to my head. Yeah. I was like, okay. And then 10 minutes later, he was almost unresponsive in the ER. Ended up being a red trauma with Mm -hmm. like ruptured internal organs. And it's like, and my partner was like, oh man, like, why did you and I was like, it's from experience because like that adrenaline rush, like you said, yeah. he was like, I'm fine. I'm fine. Why'd you hit me? Why'd you? And he's so focused on all these other pieces moving around. But then once they stop moving and that sets in that five to 10 minute yeah. range, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, I'm really hurt. And then once that gets in their head, I'm really hurt and they are hurt. It just gets worse so and worse right. and worse. Yeah. So, well, that, that sympathetic response, right? Exactly. We, we yeah. use it, you have to use it. Yeah. Right. Because once it's gone. Yeah. yeah. And, and to that same point, the, the medic who, who ruptured his abdomen just the other day or the other week, um, you know, I got feedback from him later. He's like, Oh, he said, I'm so glad you got me up and moving. He said, <laughs> yeah. by, he said by the time he got to the ED, yeah. uh, which was about 45 minutes, an hour later that he, that hematoma was so massive that his entire left leg was immobile. Like oh. he just, and he's like, I, and which would have been then 10 to 12 hours, like just 
So yeah, you, you use that sympathetic response. Like it's yeah. a, it's a massive tool. Cool. For sure. But within reason, True. you know, and, and you use it when you have the skill and the assessment ability and the patient management to know, right? Like it's, I get frustrated in both directions. I get frustrated when I have people like you come up on a crash and you have a non-medically trained person and there's that poor guy who's like lying still face down in the dirt, like twisted up like a pretzel and all the people around him are saying, don't move him, don't move him. And then I walk in, I'm like, Hey buddy, can you roll over and sit up? And you know, and it's like, it's no, like, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't know, maybe so you can breathe. And then, yeah. you know, so I'm frustrated with that, but then I'm also frustrated with the other, which is like, Oh, and this guy's fine. He's fine. He's fine. And they have no assessment skills and they're moving them or doing something with them that, you know, like you need that minute of assessment yeah. you know, to do it. So it's that, it's that fine line, you know, it's a fine line. Man. Well, Dave, appreciate you being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. That was great. Any uh, last closing thoughts for anybody listening? Oh, I just think that everyone should get out in the backcountry and play and Definitely. Just, just do it safely. Yeah. And I think exactly what you mentioned before, if you're interested in any of this stuff, the first step you should do, I almost argue before you do some wilderness first aid is start doing what it is that you want to be yeah. doing. You know, Derek Avellis is one of our leads. He's done a bunch of mountaineering trips all over the world. And, and he took his pack at one of our last classes and unloaded it and talked about why each piece of equipment is yeah. in there and why it's weight based. It's, he talks yeah. about the manufacturers and why it's packaged the way it's packaged. And that comes from him spending, you know, weeks and months doing these trips, you know, and, and I think it's, you know, it's entertaining where you have a backcountry crew and, and, uh, you call for a carryout, And the first thing they do is grab, you know, a backboard and a, and a full yeah. run bag and their life pack 15. It's like, Hey, you may be going seven miles. Yeah. Do you know, you aware of that yeah. oh yeah, yeah 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 so it's just making sure you understand what the demands of the environment are going to be and the best way you can do that is by doing it absolutely yourself couldn't so. agree more all right dave well thank you very much my pleasure